It's going to bring us this morning's reading, um, and then we will sing twice again, and, and the children can go to their, their groups after the reading. The reading is Luke 2, um, starting at verse 1 through to 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. before we um, come back to that passage why don't we just pray briefly that God would help us to hear his voice this morning Father God we thank you that as we come to your word uh, we come to a word that is living and active that speaks to us that reaches out to us where we are that affects us and shapes us and molds us more into your image Lord we thank you for what we learn of you in your word for what we come to understand of who you are and what you've done and Lord for then all that we see of who you've made us to be and how you've made us to live. So Holy Spirit just ask that you might uh, speak through these words, you might make this come alive for us and that Lord you might speak through me this morning I pray to shape us into your image and Lord to work your Glory out in your world. Amen. If 
you keep that passage there open with you, you'll find that helpful. Perhaps it's worth just sort of recapping, albeit it's a very familiar story, isn't it? Uh, Just what has happened in the story so far. We've seen this extraordinary, almost unbelievable message given to Mary from Gabriel. That she will conceive a son. Despite not yet being married at this point. That this son will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we see something about this son, that he will be a saviour. And yet we've seen the reliability of Gabriel's message, proven by the miraculous birth of John to Elizabeth and Zachariah. And we thought a little bit about that last week. And now we see the fulfilment of the promise of Jesus' birth in these events. And between John and Jesus' births, there are a number of similarities. They're both miraculous conceptions to women who shouldn't for different reasons have been able to conceive Elizabeth because she was thought to have not been able uh, to bear children and Mary because she's not yet actually uh, married to Joseph they're births that have happened by the spirit of God they're births that both bring responses of joy amazement and pondering But it's also clear in the sort of local nature of the reception of John's birth. And yet, on the other hand, the cosmic reception of Jesus' birth that we'll read of here. That Jesus' birth is to be seen as much more significant than that of John. The introduction of the worship of angels and a heavenly host clearly sets Jesus apart from John. And so we're going to see that this birth is the long-awaited reception of a gift promised long ago. And the truth is extraordinary in two ways. It's it's extraordinary in that the humble nature of Jesus' arrival. And yet it's also extraordinary in that intervention of the heavens too. We see that this is a birth uh, into poverty. That aside from the heavenly intervention actually provides nothing extraordinary and yet we also see this extraordinary announcement of the king's arrival his identity and his purpose from this angelic host look with me there at these first seven verses and what we see is the reception of the king in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that the world should be registered Jesus is born into the world of the time. He's not only, though, an event within history. He is, and that is how Luke records this. He wants you very much to receive it as being a historically accurate account. Why else would you root it very much within the governorship of a specific person in a specific time who, almost as if he could foresee that on your iPhone or your tablet, you could get onto Wikipedia and sort of search them uh, and check if they were really real. It's not only an event within history, but it is an event that's a challenge to history. The birth of Jesus from the very beginning was a challenge to the rulers and the authorities of the day. The Romans, uh, at this point in the span of the history of their empire, began to religiously venerate the emperor 
as a way of politically holding their empire together. As the empire has spread out across the continent and across different countries and into different cultures, it becomes increasingly difficult to hold that empire together. You need some sort of a central sort of governance and truth and understanding of life and the world and meaning in order to hold all these sort of disparate elements together. Otherwise, it threatens just to fracture off into different places. And so the approach that Rome takes is to adapt and adjust its religion somewhat away from the sort of pantheon of the sort of, of the, it, it's hard to say that sort of worshipping anyone in that way is in any way sort of more uh, believable, but, you know, from the more sort of mythical gods, a way to focusing on the divine nature of the emperor as a way of holding the empire together. One commentator, uh, Joel Green, writes this. He says that despite Roman reticence, because to some extent, if you could perhaps talk to some of these people putting these policies in place sort of off the record, they would perhaps actually be willing to concede to you that, oh yeah, we, there's nothing divine about any of these. <laughs> but this is a useful way of containing people and controlling them. We keep it going because... Politically, this makes sense for us. It says, despite Roman reticence vis-a-vis -vis the imperial cults, under Augustus, the reorganization of the imperial religion aided the reunification of the Roman world. Augustus himself, the emperor that's spoken of here, wasn't actually very keen on being called God himself. He actually tried to discourage that. He instead encouraged the worship of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. What happened as a result is that people knew him as the son of God. And Augustus allowed, to some extent, the worship of a sort of sense of uh, divine power operating through him, that of peace, victory, liberty, security, all those things we read of in Isaiah 9. Augustus received the title saviour, in fact, and was known as one who brought peace to all the world. And so Luke's account is making clear that Jesus' birth is a challenge to the power structures, claiming all of those things instead for Jesus. Everything that the state claimed for itself and in its emperor lay unfulfilled. And yet Jesus was the saviour who would bring a peace that Rome could not and was the son of God the Caesars were not. And so Jesus' birth happens into the world of his day. The previous narratives had shared how the birth of John and then Jesus was being fulfilled in the power of God for the purposes of God. But it is also true to say that political, historical, and geographical factors converged to make things happen this way. There's an interplay between human agency and God's sovereignty, so that we see that both are fully happening at the same time. Why does Jesus wind up being born in Bethlehem? Well, on the one hand, politically, historically, geographically, because a census was called by an emperor for a political purpose of holding the empire together. And the census didn't happen on its own. 
the census was an opportunity to raise yet another tax of the people as people would come and would have to bear tribute to the emperor by paying their dues. We see this happen throughout scripture, this interplay and connection between, on the one hand, human agency, human action, and yet also God's sovereignty working through what people do. Most famously, we read of Pharaoh. We read of him both being described as having hardened his own heart and also God having hardened his heart. And we're left asking, well, which one is it? Did he harden it or did God? We know that actually both happened. If you could ask Pharaoh, why was it that you wouldn't let the people of God go? Why was it that you kept reneging on that deal, that you kept coming back, and even though you were just about to let him go, you didn't? Why didn't you? I'm sure he wouldn't begin to talk about the influence and the impact of God upon him. I'm sure that what he would tell you is, well, financially it made sense. Free labor? It makes no sense for me to let them go and my power to be diminished? What kind of a ruler would I look like? to let go of this rabble people as if they're stronger than me. And maybe perhaps an element of spite. These are people who've caused me great discomfort. I did it to spite them. I don't think he would see God's hand in it. He would say that was his choice, that was his action. He chose that. Yet, it is also true that we see God allowing him to be hardened. It's simultaneously true that there's a human agency, a human action, a human activity, and God's sovereignty playing out. So that there are parallel perspectives on the same event. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so Luke wants to firmly root this in history. Why? Well, firstly, because Luke wants to know you, uh, wants you to know, sorry, that this really happened. This really happened in a real place with real people that you can look up. That the birth of Jesus was historical, firstly. And so we read, all went to be registered, each to his own town. This is a government that when it says something, you do it. Joseph went up from Galilee, we read, up uh, from Nazareth down to Judea, to Bethlehem. This is a journey that's, in some ways for us today, not very long, about 85 to 90 miles. But, of course, at the time, without sort of cars, planes, trains, this would be a long, arduous journey. We're told here that they went up, despite the fact, actually, they, they travel significantly south, But it indicates to us that they've had to pass by Jerusalem, which was always up on a raised level and was always sort of described in that way that you would go up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And they find themselves here just on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And this would have been a tough journey. I remember times where, you know, a journey of five minutes around the corner to the GP with Karis with the kick, sick bowl sort of between the legs 
felt like a long and arduous journey to try to negotiate that as gently as I possibly could. I've never sort of taken corners and roundabouts so sort of gently. But this is much longer, much harder. They go up to the city of David, we're told, because Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. And Luke really wants us to know that Jesus came from David's line. Why? Well, secondly, Luke wants you to know that Jesus' birth happened to fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament. It's biblical. Luke wants you to know that Jesus' birth is historical, but secondly, he wants you to know that it's biblical. It comes about to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. We can read of some of those uh, why don't I show you just a couple so as to see that and we see this promise of a David-like king who will come as Messiah and restore the kingdom in 2 Samuel 7 we read here from verse 11 the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David is promised an eternal throne through a son. There'll be one from David's line who will rule righteously and justly forever. But we learn later on that David himself is not this king. Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And do you see what's being said? And the preacher to the Hebrews will pick this up later in the New Testament, that this is God speaking to one he calls God. The preacher to the Hebrews uses this to say, this is speaking of Jesus, because only Jesus could possibly, on the one hand, be speaking to his father, God, and yet be called by his father, God. This coming David-like king is not David. And yet further we see that this promised king is connected to this promise of a Messiah. Isaiah 9 tells us in verses 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then just a few verses ago, Luke has told us that Jesus is this king. Luke chapter 1 verse 31 to 33 records the words of Gabriel here. Behold, you'll conceive... In your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son 
of God, that is. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus comes as a long-awaited fulfillment of a promise made long, long ago. And this is why Matthew 2 highlights this in his genealogy of Jesus. They've come to the city to be registered, we're told here, with Mary, his betrothed. They're engaged, Mary and Joseph, but they're not married yet. So there is a shame and a scandal. The time came for her to give birth, verse 6, we're told. It makes it seem as though this has just happened, the way it's happened, that he's born in Bethlehem by chance. Third thing Luke wants you to know, it's a historical account, it's a biblical account, but thirdly, it's about God's providence. Luke wants you to know that God works out his plans through the apparent coincidences of everyday life. And so they laid him in a manger, for there was no place for him in the inn. You know, you would normally stay with family during the census. Mary and Joseph have returned to Joseph's hometown, where his family are from. The expectation would have been, much like our normal Christmases, you know, that you'd return to family and you'd all sort of be there together. Yet they've not found a place with family. And in fact, they've not even then found a place in any of the inns. They're looking for a place in the inn because family have disowned them. Fourth thing Luke wants you to see is historical account. It's a biblical account. There's providence. But fourthly, there's scandal. Luke wants you to know that Jesus' birth is shrouded in shame and scandal. They don't have a place with family because family don't want to take them in. We've seen the reception of the king. Now we see this report from the angels. For a birth with such cosmic consequences, it has a remarkably local, everyday audience and reception, at least until now. In the same region, verse 8, we're told, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And in the midst of the silence and mundanity of a night shift, in the stillness and darkness of the fields, there's this wondrous disturbance. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around, and they were filled with fear. These shepherds, these hardened, tough men, defending their sheep from wild animals, from marauding thieves, are terrified. And their fear is not an entirely unreasonable response. Uh, when we think of angels, we have so much in our mind, I think, the sort of idea of classical art. Uh, and we sort of find it difficult to really understand how the shepherds could possibly feel fear. How could you fear a sort of chubby child? And yet in Scripture, we get a totally different picture of angels, angels who are truly fearsome in appearance, commanders of armies, those who go ahead of Israel laying waste to their oppressors. I think the fear might not be an unreasonable response from the shepherds. So the angel says to them, fear not. It feels to me like one of those responses that is completely correct 
but would have done nothing for them. Fear not. <laughs> Correct. But whether they would have feared any less, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Why shouldn't they fear? Well, they're told here, verse 10, For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. We won't see it here in the English that's there before us, but at the time, again, thinking back to that historical context where Rome is transitioning to now putting inflated importance upon the emperor, whenever there would be an announcement of a birth of an emperor, it would be sent out throughout the whole empire as good news with messengers to carry. Much like even today when there's a royal birth, isn't there? There's an announcement put out there at the front, printed out for people and someone will come out and announce it for everyone. There's pomp and sort of ceremony to it. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And what is this news? Look at verse 11 there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. There's no need to fear because God has given the world a saviour. This is the good news. The good news is a son from God, not another emperor. And this will be the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. These are strange signs. Wrapped in cloth in a manger. The only <coughs> sorry, signs that they see indicate that Jesus is born into abject poverty. This will be the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now comes the glorious power. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. God's plan of salvation fulfilled by the coming of a saviour was to bring glory to God and to bring peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Fear not, for I bring you good news. It's in the reception of the king, the report of the angels, and then lastly, the response of the people. What will happen now once the angels have gone? How will people on the ground react and respond to Jesus' birth? Verse 15, do that with me. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds leave their flocks, possibly unattended, and at risk of huge financial loss in order to see Jesus. This tells us, firstly, the shepherds believed it to be more important and of more value to meet Jesus than to look after their flock. Verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They actually acted out. This isn't just words, they're straight at it. They went with haste to go see him. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. This tells us not only, firstly, the shepherds believed it to be of more importance and of more value to meet Jesus than look after their flock. 
despite that risking huge financial loss for them. But secondly, that the shepherds believed that this news, this child, was of such significance the news needed to be shared. What sort of a reaction will this news from these messengers receive? Because being no doubt, this is extraordinary news, but it's from very ordinary messengers. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered. Uh, the, the word there in the original Greek uh, is, is that they were astonished. In fact, actually, you, you could translate it, and maybe it would make more sense to us in modern language, they were out of their senses. They were out of their mind. All of their sort of thoughts, all their sort of frameworks for understanding, all of their categories have sort of been blown. They don't know what to think. We see the first reaction here from the crowds is that they think on it and they don't know what to think. Their minds and their categories have simply been blown. Then we see a second audience here. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering these things. Mary treasured them. She kept them safe. She's held them close. She's not forgotten them. Pondering them. Throwing them together, the word means. It's, she's trying to work out what this means. What on earth does she make of any of this? But she keeps them close. She keeps thinking on them. She values them. Mary, on the other hand to the crowd, continues to wrestle with understanding these things. It keeps hold of them. The crowd's response is to not know what to think. Mary's is to wrestle to try to understand what they mean. And then we turn back to the shepherds. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds, by contrast, if the crowds had not known what to think about it, and Mary had struggled and fought to try to know what to think about it. The shepherds, by contrast, glorify and praise God like the angels that they had heard from. You see in these three audiences increasing wisdom in their responses. From awe to meditating to worship in the crowds, in Mary, in the shepherds. And that's a fitting place to end this morning I think for this isn't a story that's asking you to agree with it or not it simply is history it's not concerned whether you agree with that or not it's not concerned how plausible you deem that to be it's just recorded matter of factly it's not a story that's actually asking you to do anything either the end point at the end is not asking really for anything particularly from you. There's nothing much that you could do. It's not a moral, ethical tale telling you how to respond to poor families, though it would be consistent with the gospel to actually care about that, wouldn't it? So what are we to do? We are left with the only fitting response being to receive him as a gift. To receive 
the Saviour Christ, born for you. Let every heart prepare him room. Repeat the sounding joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that all your promises, you always come good on. This is a promise that people will have had to have waited a long, long time to see come to life. And Lord, though we have come to know you, we await your return and we don't know at what point that will be. We too live in a time of waiting to see all of its fulfillment. But Lord, I thank you for your graciousness, your kindness, your mercy and your love towards us. That you don't forget your promises and that you always deliver upon them. We thank you that you did indeed give your son to us. And so Lord, we pray for your help once again to respond by just receiving the gifts of Jesus as our saviour, as our Lord, as our righteous king and to find joy, peace, salvation in him and to respond in joy and worship of the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, the angels and heavenly hosts sang upon the earth be peace for all those with whom he's pleased. But we thank you that that promise is just as true this morning. Lord, may we know that. And Lord, in the midst of a difficult time outside of us with lots of different things going on and you know, very little certainty uh, about many things, to find deep joy and peace in you this Christmas time, to know security in our salvation through you. We thank you, Lord, that you not only came, Jesus, to earth, but that you lived a perfect life for us, that you might give yourself up for us as a sacrifice, that we might be made right with you, that we might share all the spoils, all the joys of your kingdom with you. Holy Spirit, pray that you would impress this great hope and joy upon our hearts over this time. And especially, um, you know, in days that are, are challenging in other ways, to find hope and strength and joy in you, we pray. Amen.